0: Chapter Twenty One Part Two of Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit by Charles Dickens. Chapter Twenty One Part Two. Poor Martin, forever building castles in the air forever in his very selfishness, forgetful of all but his own teeming hopes and sanguine plans—swelling at that instant with the consciousness of patronizing and most munificently rewarding Mark. "'I don't know, sir,' Mark rejoined, much more sadly than his custom was, though from a very different cause than Martin supposed. "'What I can say to this, in the way of thanking you—' "'I'll stand by you, sir, to the best of my ability, and to the last. That's all.' "'We quite understand each other, my good fellow,' said Martin, rising in self-approval and condescension. "'We are no longer master and servant, but friends and partners, and are mutually gratified. If we determine on Eden, the business shall be commenced as soon as we get there.' "'Under the name,' said Martin, who never hammered upon an idea that wasn't red-hot,' under the name of Chuzzlewit and Tapley. "'Lord love you, sir,' cried Mark. "'Don't have my name in it. "'I ain't acquainted with the business, sir. "'I must be co. I must.' "'I've often thought,' he added, in a low voice, "'as I should like to know a co, "'but I little thought as ever I should live to be one.' "'You shall have your own way, Mark.' "'Thank ye, sir. "'If any country gentleman thereabouts, "'in the public way or otherwise, "'wanted such a thing as a skittle-ground made. "'I could take that part of the business, sir.' "'Against any architect in the state,' said Martin, "'get a couple of sherry cobblers. Mark, we will drink success to the firm.' Either he forgot already, and often afterwards, that they were no longer master and servant, or considered this kind of duty to be among the legitimate functions of the co. But Mark obeyed with his usual alacrity, and before they parted for the night, it was agreed between them that they should go together to the agents in the morning, but that Martin should decide the Eden question on his own sound judgment. And Mark made no merit, even to himself and his jollity, of this concession, perfectly well knowing that the matter would come to that in the end anyway. The general was one of the party at the public table next day, and after breakfast suggested that they should wait upon the agent without loss of time. They, desiring nothing more, agreed— So off they all four started for the office of the Eden Settlement, which was almost within rifle-shot of the National Hotel. It was a small place, something like a turnpike, but a great deal of land may be got into a dice-box. And why may not a whole territory be bargained for in a shed? It was but a temporary office, too, for the Edeners were going to build a superb establishment for the transaction of their business— and had already got so far as to mark out the site. Which is a great way in America. The office door was wide open, and in the doorway was the agent. No doubt a tremendous fellow to get through his work, for he seemed to have no arrears, but was swinging backwards and forwards in a rocking-chair, with one of his legs planted high up against the door-post, and the other doubled up under him, as if he were hatching his foot. He was a gaunt man, in a huge straw hat, and a coat of green stuff. The weather being hot, he had no cravat, and wore his shirt-collar wide open, so that every time he spoke, something was seen to twitch and jerk up in his throat, like the little hammers in a harpsichord when the notes are struck. Perhaps it was the truth feebly endeavouring to leap to his lips. If so, it never reached them. Two grey eyes lurked deep within this agent's head but one of them had no sight in it, and stood stock still. With that side of his face, he seemed to listen to what the other side was doing. Thus, each profile had a distinct expression, and when the movable side was most in action, the rigid one was in its coldest state of watchfulness. It was like turning the man inside out, to pass to that view of his features in his liveliest mood, and see how calculating and intent they were. Each long black hair upon his head hung down as straight as any plummet-line, but rumpled tufts were on the arches of his eyes, as if the crow, whose foot was deeply printed in the corners, had pecked and torn them, in a savage recognition of his kindred nature as a bird of prey. Such was the man whom they now approached, and whom the general saluted by the name of Scatter. "'Well, General,' he returned, and how are you?' "'Active and spry, sir, in my country's service and the sympathetic cause. Two gentlemen on business, Mr. Scatter.' "'He shook hands with each of them. "'Nothing is done in America without shaking hands. "'Then went on rocking. "'I think I know what business you have brought these strangers here upon, then, General.' "'Well, sir, I expect you may.' "'You air a tonguey person, General, for you talk too much, and that's fact,' said Scatter.' You speak alarming well in public, but you didn't ought to go ahead so fast in private. Now, if I can realize your meaning, ride me on a rail,' returned the General, after pausing for consideration. "'You know we didn't wish to sell the lots off right away to any loafer as might bid,' said Scatter, but had concluded to reserve them for aristocrats of Nader, yes. "'And they are here, sir,' cried the General, with warmth. "'They are here, sir.' "'If they air here—' Returned the agent in reproachful accents, "That's enough, but you didn't ought to have your dander riz with me, General." The general whispered Martin that Scatter was the honestest fellow in the world, and that he wouldn't have given him offence designedly for ten thousand dollars. "I do my duty, and I raise the dander of my fellow critters as I wish to serve," said Scatter in a low voice, looking down the road and rocking still. "'They rile up rough, along of my objecting "'to their selling Eden off too cheap. "'That's human Well—' "'Mr. Scatter,' said the General, "'assuming his oratorical deportment. "'Sir, here is my hand, and here my heart. "'I esteem you, sir, and ask your pardon. "'These gentlemen ere friends of mine, "'or I would not have brought them here, sir, "'being well aware, sir, "'that the lots at present go entirely too cheap. "'But these ere friends, sir, "'these are particular friends.' Mr. Scatter was so satisfied by this explanation that he shook the general warmly by the hand and got out of the rocking-chair to do it. He then invited the general's particular friends to accompany him into the office. As to the general, he observed, with his usual benevolence, that being one of the company, he wouldn't interfere in the transaction on any account. So he appropriated the rocking-chair to himself and looked at the prospect, like a good Samaritan waiting for a traveller. "'Heyday!' cried Martin, as his eye rested on a great plan, which occupied one whole side of the office. Indeed, the office had little else in it but some geological and botanical specimens, one or two rusty ledgers, a homely desk, and a stool. "'Heyday! What's that?' "'That's Eden,' said Scatter, picking his teeth with a sort of young bayonet that flew out of his knife when he touched a spring. "'Why, I had no idea it was a city!' Hadn't you? Oh, it's a city. A flourishing city, too, an architectural city. There were banks, churches, cathedrals, market places, factories, hotels, stores, mansions, wharves, an exchange, a theater, public buildings of all kinds, down to the office of the Eden Stinger, a daily journal, all faithfully depicted in the view before them. Dear me, it's really a most important place, cried Martin, turning round. "'Oh, it's very important,' observed the agent. "'But I am afraid,' said Martin, glancing again at the public buildings, "'that there's nothing left for me to do.' "'Well, it ain't all built,' replied the agent. "'Not quite.' "'This was a great relief. "'The marketplace now,' said Martin. "'Is that built?' "'That?' said the agent, "'sticking his toothpick into the weathercock on the top. "'Let me see. "'No, that ain't built.' "Rather a good job to begin with, eh Mark?" whispered Martin, nudging him with his elbow. Mark, who with a very stolid countenance had been eyeing the plan and the agent by turns, merely rejoined, "uncommon." A dead silence ensued. Mr. Scatter, in some short recesses or vacations of his toothpick, whistled a few bars of "Yankee Doodle" and blew the dust off the roof of the theater. "I suppose," said Martin, feigning to look more narrowly at the plan, but showing by his tremulous voice how much depended, in his mind, upon the answer. "'I suppose there are several architects there.' "'There ain't a single one,' said Scatter. "'Mark,' whispered Martin, pulling him by the sleeve, "'do you hear that?' "'But whose work is all this before us, then?' he asked aloud. "'The soil being very fruitful, public buildings grow spontaneous, perhaps,' said Mark." He was on the agent's dark side as he said it, but Scatter instantly changed his place and brought his active eye to bear upon him. "'Feel of my hands, young man,' he said. "'What for?' asked Mark, declining. "Are they dirty or ere they clean, sir?' said Scatter, holding them out. "'In a physical point of view, they were decidedly dirty.' But it being obvious that Mr. Scadder offered them for examination, in a figurative sense, as emblems of his moral character, Martin hastened to pronounce them pure as the driven snow. "'I entreat, Mark,' he said with some irritation, "'that you will not obtrude remarks of that nature, "'which, however harmless and well-intentioned, are quite out of place, "'and cannot be expected to be very agreeable to strangers. "'I am quite surprised.' "'The Coe's a-putting his foot in it already,' thought Mark. "'He must be a sleeping partner. Fast asleep and snoring, co must. I see.' Mr. Scatter said nothing, but he set his back against the plan and thrust his toothpick into the desk some twenty times, looking at Mark all the while as if he were stabbing him in effigy. "'You haven't said whose work it is,' Martin ventured to observe at length, in a tone of mild propitiation. Well, "'Never mind whose work it is or isn't,' said the agent, sulkily. "'No matter how it did eventuate.' "'Perhaps he cleared off handsome with a heap of dollars. Praps he wasn't worth a cent. "'Perhaps he was a loafin' rowdy. "'Perhaps a ring-tailed roarer. "'Now!' "'All you're doing, Mark,' said Martin. Praps, pursued the agent, "'them ain't plants of Eden's raising. "'No. "'Perhaps that desk and stool ain't made from Eden lumber. "'No. "'Perhaps no end of squatters ain't gone out there. "'No. "'Perhaps there ain't no such location "'in the territory of the great United States.' "'Oh, no! I hope you are satisfied with the success of your joke, Mark,' said Martin. But here, at a most opportune and happy time, the general interposed, and called out to scatter from the doorway, to give his friends the particulars of that little lot of fifty acres with the house upon it, which, having belonged to the company formerly, had lately lapsed again into their hands. "'You are a deal too open-handed, general,' was the answer. It is a lot as should be rose in price, it is. He grumblingly opened his books, notwithstanding, and always keeping his bright side towards Mark, no matter at what amount of inconvenience to himself, displayed a certain leaf for their perusal. Martin read it greedily, and then inquired, Now where upon the plan may this place be? Upon the plan? said Scatter. Yes. He turned towards it, and reflected for a short time, as if, Having been put upon his mettle, he was resolved to be particular to the very minutest hair's breadth of a shade. At length, after wheeling his toothpick slowly round and round in the air, as if it were a carrier pigeon just thrown up, he suddenly made a dart at the drawing and pierced the very centre of the main wharf through and through. "'There,' he said, leaving his knife quivering in the wall. "'That's where it is.' Martin glanced with sparkling eyes upon his co, and his co saw that the thing was done. The bargain was not concluded as easily as might have been expected, though, for Scatter was caustic and ill-humoured, and cast much unnecessary opposition in the way. At one time requesting them to think of it, and call again in a week or a fortnight, at another predicting that they wouldn't like it, at another offering to retract and let them off, and muttering strong imprecations upon the folly of the general. But the whole of the astoundingly small sum total of purchase money— it was only one hundred and fifty dollars, or something more than thirty pounds of the capital brought by Coe into the architectural concern—was ultimately paid down, and Martin's head was two inches nearer the roof of the little wooden office, with the consciousness of being a landed proprietor in the thriving city of Eden. "'If it shouldn't happen to fit,' said Scatter, as he gave Martin the necessary credentials on receipt of his money, "'don't blame me.' "'No, no,' he replied merrily, "'will not blame you. "'General, are you going?' "'I am at your service, sir, and I wish you,' said the general, giving him his hand with grave cordiality, "'joy of your possession.' "'You err now, sir, a denizen of the most powerful and highly civilized dominion "'that has ever graced the world. "'A dominion, sir, where man is bound to man "'in one vast bond of equal love and truth. "'May you, sir, be worthy of your adopted country.' "'Martin thanked him, and took leave of Mr. Scadder, "'who had resumed his post in the rocking-chair, "'immediately on the General's rising from it, "'and was once more swinging away, as if he had never been disturbed.' Mark looked back several times as they went down the road towards the National Hotel. But now his blighted profile was towards them, and nothing but attentive thoughtfulness was written on it. Strangely different to the other side. He was not a man much given to laughing, and never laughed outright. But every line in the print of the crow's foot, and every little wiry vein in that division of his head, was wrinkled up into a grin. The compound figure of Death and the Lady at the top of the old ballad, was not divided with a greater nicety, and had in halves more monstrously unlike each other than the two profiles of Zephaniah scatter. The general posted along at a great rate, for the clock was on the stroke of twelve, and at that hour precisely, the great meeting of the water-toast sympathizers was to be holden in the public room of the National Hotel. Being very curious to witness the demonstration and know what it was all about, Martin kept close to the general, and keeping closer than ever, when they entered the hall, got, by that means, upon a little platform of tables at the upper end, where an armchair was set for the general, and Mr. Lafayette Kettle, as secretary, was making a great display of some fool's-cap documents. Screamers, no doubt. "'Well, sir,' he said, as he shook hands with Martin, "'here is a spectacle calculated to make the British lion put his tail between his legs and howl with anguish, I expect.' Martin certainly thought it possible that the British lion might have been rather out of his element in that arc, but he kept the idea to himself. The general was then voted to the chair on the motion of a pallid lad of the Jefferson Brick School, who forthwith set in for a high-spiced speech with a good deal about hearths and homes in it, and unriveting the chains of tyranny. Oh, but it was a clincher for the British lion, it was— The indignation of the glowing young Columbian knew no bounds. "'If he could only have been one of his own forefathers,' he said, "'wouldn't he have peppered that same lion, "'and been to him as another brute tamer with a wire whip, "'teaching him lessons not easily forgotten?' "'Lion!' cried that young Columbian. "'Where is he? Who is he? What is he? "'Show him to me. Let me have him here. Here!' said the young columbian in a wrestling attitude upon this sacred altar here cried the young columbian idealizing the dining-table upon ancestral ashes cemented with the glorious blood poured out like water on our native plains of Chickabiddy lick "'Bring forth that lion,' said the young Colombian. "'Alone I dare him. I taunt that lion. "'I tell that lion that freedom's hand once twisted in his mane, "'he rolls a course before me, "'and the eagles of the great republic laugh. Ha-ha!' When it was found that the lion didn't come but kept out of the way, that the young Colombian stood there with folded arms, "'alone in his glory, and consequently that the eagles "'were no doubt laughing wildly on the mountaintops,' Such cheers arose as might have shaken the hands upon the horse guard's clock, and changed the very mean time of the day in England's capital. "'Who is this?' Martin telegraphed to Lafayette. The secretary wrote something very gravely on a piece of paper, twisted it up, and had it passed to him from hand to hand. It was an improvement on the old sentiment, perhaps as remarkable a man as any in our country.' This young Colombian was succeeded by another, to the full as eloquent as he, who drew down storms of cheers. But both remarkable youths, in their great excitement—for your true poetry can never stoop to details—forgot to say with whom or what the water-toasters sympathized, and likewise why or wherefore they were sympathetic. Thus Martin remained for a long time as completely in the dark as ever until at length a ray of light broke in upon him through the medium of the secretary, who, by reading the minutes of their past proceedings, made the matter somewhat clearer. He then learned that the Water Toast Association sympathized with a certain public man in Ireland, who held a contest upon certain points with England, and that they did so because they didn't love England at all, not by any means because they loved Ireland much, being indeed horribly jealous and distrustful of its people always, and only tolerating them because of their working hard, which made them very useful, labour being held in greater indignity in the simple Republic than in any other country upon earth. This rendered Martin curious to see what grounds of sympathy the Water-Toast Association put forth. Nor was he long in suspense, for the general rose to read a letter to the public man which, with his own hands, he had written— Thus, said the General, thus, my friends and fellow-citizens, it runs. Sir, I address you on behalf of the Water-Toast Association of United Sympathisers. It is founded, sir, in the great Republic of America, and now holds its breath and swells the blue veins in its forehead, nigh to bursting as it watches, sir, with feverish intensity and sympathetic ardour, your noble efforts in the cause of freedom.' At the name of Freedom, and at every repetition of that name, all the sympathizers roared aloud, cheering with nine times nine and nine times over. In Freedom's name, sir, holy Freedom, I address you. In Freedom's name, I send herewith a contribution to the funds of your society. In Freedom's name, sir, I advert with indignation and disgust to that accursed animal with gore-stained whiskers whose rampant cruelty and fiery lust. Have ever been a scourge, a torment to the world. The naked visitors to Crusoe's Island, sir, the flying wives of Peter Wilkins, the fruit-smeared children of the Tangled Bush—nay, even the men of large stature, anciently bred in the mining districts of Cornwall, alike bear witness to its savage nature. Where, sir, are the Cormorans, the Blunderbores, the great fee fums named in history—all, all exterminated by its destroying hand? I allude, sir, to the British lion. Devoted mind and body, heart and soul, to freedom, sir, to freedom, blessed solace to the snail upon the cellar door, the oyster in his pearly bed, the still mite in his home of cheese, the very winkle of your country in his shelly lair, in her unsullied name we offer you our sympathy. O sir, in this our cherished and our happy land, her fires burn bright and clear and smokeless. Once lighted up in yours, the lions shall be roasted whole. I am, sir, in freedom's name, your affectionate friend and faithful sympathizer, Cyrus Choke, General, U.S.M. It happened that just as the General began to read this letter, the railroad train arrived, bringing a new mail from England, and a packet had been handed in to the secretary, which, during its perusal and the frequent cheerings in homage to freedom, he had opened— Now its contents disturbed him very much, and the moment the general sat down, he hurried to his side, and placed in his hand a letter and several printed extracts from English newspapers, to which, in a state of infinite excitement, he called his immediate attention. The general, being greatly heated by his own composition, was in a fit state to receive any inflammable influence but he had no sooner possessed himself of the contents of these documents than a change came over his face involving such a huge amount of choler and passion that the noisy concourse were silent in a moment, in very wonder, at the sight of him. "'My friends!' cried the general, rising. "'My friends and fellow-citizens! We have been mistaken in this man!' "'In what man?' was the cry. "'In this!' panted the general, holding up the letter he had read aloud a few minutes before. I find that he has been and is the advocate, consistent in it always, too, of nigger emancipation. If anything beneath the sky be real, those sons of freedom would have pistoled, stabbed in some way slain that man by coward hands and murderous violence if he had stood among them at that time. The most confiding of their own countrymen would not have wagered then no, nor would they ever peril, one dung straw upon the life of any man in such a strait. They tore the letter, cast the fragments in the air, trod down the pieces as they fell, and yelled and groaned and hissed, till they could cry no longer. "'I shall move,' said the general, when he could make himself heard, "'that the water-toast association of united sympathizers be immediately dissolved.' down with it, away with it, don't hear of it, burn its records, pull the room down, blot it out of human memory. "'But, my fellow countrymen,' said the General, "'the contributions—we have funds. What is to be done with the funds?' It was hastily resolved that a piece of plate should be presented to a certain constitutional judge who had laid down from the bench the noble principle that it was lawful for any white mob to murder any black man— and that another piece of plate of similar value should be presented to a certain patriot who had declared from his high place in the legislature that he and his friends would hang without trial any abolitionist who might pay them a visit. For the surplus it was agreed that it should be devoted to aiding the enforcement of those free and equal laws which render it incalculably more criminal and dangerous to teach a negro to read and write than to roast him alive in a public city. These points adjusted, the meeting broke up in great disorder, and there was an end of the water-toast sympathy. As Martin ascended to his bedroom, his eye was attracted by the Republican banner, which had been hoisted from the housetop, in honour of the occasion, and was fluttering before a window which he passed. "'Tut!' said Martin. "'You're a gay flag in the distance, but let a man be near enough to get the light upon the other side and see through you, and you are but sorry fustian.' End of chapter 21